Well, please turn in your Bibles back to Acts 4 this morning. Typically, when I've been filling the pulpit, we've been studying uh, Mark, but today we're deviating for the, from that. This is a kind of a one, one-off message, and we'll pick up Lord willing and Mark next time. It's also a message, an expansion of a message uh, that I had the privilege to preach uh, to some students in Mexico. And uh, since we're relatively fresh off uh, that trip to Mexico, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, preach today on the gospel, a simple message on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts records the apostolic proclamation of Christ and the establishment of the New Testament church. If you think about your New Testament you can think about the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, as the presentation of Christ, Acts as the proclamation of Christ, and then the Epistles as the explanation of life in Christ, and Revelation as the culmination of all things in Christ. And when you read through your New Testament, And I'd encourage you to do this. If you can set aside a a block of time, a block of several weeks, and just read your New Testament from cover to cover, it's it's phenomenal the things that you see uh, harmonize as you see Christ in His life through His crucifixion and resurrection, the establishing of the church in the book of Acts, and the harmony then of the epistles as they explain life in Christ, and then what we have yet to anticipate when Christ returns and when we are with the Lord for all eternity. But in Acts, we have the record of the apostolic proclamation of Christ and the establishment of the church. And what we find as we are in the book of Acts is that Whether the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed in the temple in Jerusalem, whether it's being proclaimed in Syria or in Athens or in Rome, the essence of the message is unchanged. The apostles all preach Jesus Christ. They preach Jesus Christ crucified, buried, raised up, ascended, and returning. And whether it's the Jews in the temple, the pagans in Athens, in Rome, that great but pagan city, the call, the call of the gospel is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the risen and the ascended Lord, He is also the returning Lord and the judge of all mankind. One day you will stand before Jesus Christ. He lives. He's returning. And so you must turn to Him for the forgiveness of sins. You must turn to Him for salvation. And again, we see that consistently all through the book of Acts, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus Christ is central. And it makes it rather simple for those who are followers of Christ to obey Christ, even in the Great Commission, that we go and make disciples of all nations. Well, how do we do that? 
We have the pattern here in the book of Acts. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ buried. Preach Christ raised from the dead, ascended, and returning. And whatever culture you're in, wherever you go, the gospel is effective as Jesus Christ is preached. As I mentioned, a couple weeks ago, we returned from Mexico. And while we were there, the purpose of our, of our trip is very simple. We go to uh, encourage the churches there and the pastors there that are proclaiming Christ. And it was a joy to uh, bring to Mexico the generous offering that you had supplied and to distribute that directly to pastors and to local churches where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and to visit those churches in different locations. One of the churches we visited was in the middle of the city, a teeming city. And what did we do there? We saw Christ preach. We worshiped with people who loved Christ and preached Christ. Now, when I preached Christ, I was preaching through an interpreter, and I'm pretty sure he was saying what I was saying in Spanish. But it was a joy to be able to know, even though I can't understand the, na the, the native language of the people to whom I'm preaching, when I open the Word of God and tell those people about Christ through the work of those wonderful translators, they understand. They understand. Because they understand what it means to be in need of your sins forgiven. They understand what it means that someone, Jesus Christ, died for sin. They understand what it means that when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved from your sin. They understand what it means that they will one day die, and they will one day be in eternity. And where they spend eternity is determined by what they do with Jesus Christ. And what we witnessed while we were there in Mexico, whether it was a church in the city or a church way out in the frontiers of Mexico, that's the best way I can describe it, or whether it was a church in the mountains started by a man who had come over to the United States to work, heard the gospel, went back, used his family land to establish a church, wherever, wherever the gospel was being preached, people understood and people were being transformed because of the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The gospel, the gospel is unchanged in its essence, in its proclamation, wherever you are in the world. And again, that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. In the temple precincts, in the house of Cornelius, while Paul is in prison in Rome at the end of the book, what's happening? Jesus Christ is being preached. Wherever you go in the world, Wherever you go in the world, the greatest need is the same. Salvation 
from sin, salvation in Christ alone. Because the greatest need is the same, the answer is always the same, Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to look at a very simple gospel proclamation. The text of the morning is Acts chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, whereas Peter is concluding his statement of defense before the Jewish rulers, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What we're going to see this morning from this text, the theme this morning, is that gospel proclamation asserts the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. Gospel proclamation, to proclaim the gospel, gospel proclamation asserts, it doesn't suggest It asserts the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're going to look at three observations from this text this morning. First, we see the simplicity of the gospel message the simplicity of the gospel message. In verse 11, Peter establishes that the name which he speaks is the name of Jesus as he brings his defense to a convicting head with these temple officials, with these people who were essentially responsible for killing the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And that then is what sets up the following statement. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a simple gospel presentation the simplicity of the gospel message. First of all, there's a denial. A denial. There is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If Peter had stopped after that first statement, how hopeless would that be? If he had stopped with, there is no salvation, how hopeless would that be? What is he talking about when he's talking about salvation? What is he talking about when he's denying that salvation exists in any other apart from Jesus Christ? What is is salvation? Well, salvation, 
by the very word indicates that there is something that is destructive, something that we need to be saved from. And we could spend much time going through the epistles and many passages working out exactly what it is that we need to be saved from. Paul does this in Romans extensively in the first three chapters as he shows that the wrath of God is revealed. Why is the wrath of God revealed? Because men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Everyone knows that God exists. Paul asserts that. They know that God exists because of creation. They know that God exists because of their conscience. Everyone knows that God exists. And so even when you're talking to an atheist, you know, the goal is not to convince an atheist that God exists. He already knows that. You say, well, how can you say that he already knows that when he asserts that he doesn't know that? The reason I can say that he already knows it is because God's word has told me that he already knows that God exists. And so in that conversation, I'm just starting with revelation. Sir atheist, God exists and you know it because God has told me that you know it. And so my approach there is simply to point out that he already knows that God exists. And the reason he's trying to suppress that knowledge is because of his condemnation, his being under the wrath of a holy God. And Paul goes on to show how that God's wrath is righteous because of men suppressing the truth and going wholeheartedly after their flesh. Or in chapter 2, how men suppress the truth and wholeheartedly work to establish their own righteousness apart from the righteousness of God. And either way, it's disastrous. Because either way, when you die, whether you die as a sinner in the sense of pursuing fleshly, heinous sins with all your heart, or whether you die as a hypocrite, having put on an external form of righteousness without the transforming power of God, when you die without Christ, you're damned for eternity to the, the, the experience of the wrath of God without any break. The eternal destruction of the wrath of God is what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's the state of every person. We're all going to die, and we're all going to go into eternity. And we know we're going to die, and that terrifies us. You think about death, what is death? This morning, I happened to see a, a picture of a loved one that in the last, I guess, three, within the last three or four years, passed away. And, you know, you're looking at that person, that relative and you're seeing pictures of that person with other relatives, pictures of that person with you. 
and remembering those times that you enjoyed, perhaps even the conversations that you had, and, and now that person is gone. They've died. What is death? Death is a separation. It's a separation of our body and soul. Our body is here. Our body is put into the ground. To dust we go. Our soul continues on until the day of resurrection. But it is a separation. It's a separation from the people on earth that we love. It is a sobering reality. And yet it is the reality. And again, you think about anywhere you go in the world. The people that you're surrounded by, anywhere you go. Here this morning, or together in this room, but a hundred years from now, we're all going to be gone, most likely. We'll just be safe, 150 years for sure. All right, we're going to be gone. Well, who's going to be in this room? I have no idea. Not me. When we were in Cordoba, walking around the city at the Indian Training Center, out in the country, up in the mountains, we were surrounded by people. Where are those people going to be in 100 years, 150 years? Not there. Gone. Death is universal. Why? Because sin is universal. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that death came because of sin. Death came because of sin. This is one of the most poignant theological points for undermining evolution. You can't have death without sin. You can't have sin without people. Death came because of sin. It's because of sin we're all going to die. It's because of sin we all need salvation. And Peter, in this simple statement of the gospel, says, Look, we need salvation. Sadducees, temple rulers, Pharisees, scribes, everyone here, we need salvation. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a denial here. You know you need salvation. Where do you go for salvation? Well, you can't go, you can't go anywhere except one place. But first, the denial. There is no salvation outside of that one person, Jesus Christ. A Christless religion, a Christless religion, no matter how close it gets, no matter even if it says it believes the Scriptures. A Christless religion is nothing. A Christless religion is no salvation. This is what these rulers had. They had religion. They believed the Scriptures. They believed God, but not Christ. 
And a Christless religion will not save you. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, what's at the heart of a Christless religion? Why are there so many versions of Christless religions? Why are there Christless religions that give lip service to the Scripture? Why are there Christless religions that are absolute pagan, but in the whole spectrum, none of those things, none of those names, none of those practices provide salvation? What's at the heart of Christless religion? The heart of Christless religion is self. The heart of Christless religion is self. It is a sense that there's some way that I can earn enough favor with God. It might be by giving lip service to Scripture. It might be by sacrificing my child. But at the heart of Christless religion is me. Me trying to find a way to get salvation on my terms. And Peter says, it can't be done. Ultimately, when he says there is no other name, he's pointing the finger at each one of us and saying, even your name, even your name is not sufficient for salvation. There is no other name. There's a denial But then there is a declaration. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The declaration is we must be saved. And we must be saved on the basis of one name. The name that is the cornerstone. The name that is the the name of the man who died for sin, the name of the God-man who rose from the dead, who defeated death, who defeated death, and who ascended to the Father, and who, at whose voice all the dead will rise. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the significance of Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection? The significance of Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection is the guarantee that all will rise. Christ defeated death. And like he said in John chapter 5, at, his, at the sound of his voice, all will rise, the righteous to spend eternity with him, the unrighteous to be condemned to eternity in hell. All will rise because the guarantee has already been established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there's no other name except one, the name of Jesus Christ by which you must You must be saved. The call to salvation is a declaration. It is a command. You're going to die. And you don't even know when you're going to die. 
It's only according to the Lord's will that we will even live tomorrow. There's no guarantee. You're going to die. And when you die, it is appointed to men to die once, and after that, the judgment. There's no salvation after death. Your opportunity is over. You must be saved. You must be saved from your sin. You must be saved to eternal life. You must turn to Jesus Christ. The declaration to salvation is a command. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. And this is precisely what Peter gives here. And again and again when he preaches throughout the book of Acts, turn to Christ. There is no salvation elsewhere. Christ alone. Gospel proclamation asserts the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. Your only hope, your only hope when that day comes And who knows how it'll come? It might come instantly in a tragedy. That's how my grandmother was killed. A car broadsided her, and she immediately went to the presence of the Lord. It might come through an extended illness. We don't know, but what we know is the day will come when your soul departs from this body Or, if the Lord comes before that when you're changed, but the day will come when your time on this earth is over and you're in the presence of God. What will be your plea? Will it be your name or will it be be the name by which you must be saved? It's coming. It's coming. The simplicity of the gospel message, it's a denial. There's no other name. And it's a declaration. You must be saved by the one name of the Lord Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the name that delivers you from death. It's the name by which your sins are forgiven. It's the name by which you are welcomed into fellowship with God through Christ. It's the name by which you're granted sonship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've repeated this idea of the name. The name. Why does Peter answer the ruler's with that statement, there is no other name in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, in their thinking, they understood that a name represented authority and power. And if you go back in the passage to verse 7, when they begin the questioning, the rulers of the temple, 
when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And they're asking that because back in chapter 3, Peter said when he came into the temple and addressed the lame beggar, in verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, what's the significance of that miracle? Well, from that point on, Peter in chapter 3 goes on and he proclaims Christ. And he tells the Jews that are there, look, you need to turn to the Messiah. And and we've showed you the need to turn to the name of Jesus Christ because in the name of Jesus Christ, this man was restored And his restoration was a sign of the power of Jesus Christ to deliver from the consequences of sin, right? Just like that man was poor and had nothing, in the name of Christ he was raised up and praised God. And all those who believe in Christ, (laughs) when we're buried with nothing, Right, think about that for a moment. All of the stuff that so easily entangles our thinking. When, when we're buried, we've got nothing. But when Christ returns and calls us forth, we're, we're going to rise up, glorified, transformed instantly. And the side miracle that the apostles proclaimed was a verification of the power of Jesus Christ to deliver people from sin. And if that indeed was the case, then it was an indictment against the Jewish leaders who had put Jesus Christ to death. And now Peter is saying, the name of the person that you put to death, but that God raised, it's that name. It's that name that has the power to deliver from sin. And it's only that name by which you must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The simplicity of the gospel message It comes down to a denial, and I've taken, I don't know how much time to expand the simplicity, but you could really, you could take this verse, and as God gives you opportunities to tell others about Christ, right, this is the essence of the gospel. You can't be saved from death in your own name. Anything you do, insufficient. Anything you turn to apart from Christ, insufficient. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A denial and a declaration. You must be saved 
by Christ. Well, what happened? As Peter concluded his statement with this simple statement of the gospel asserting the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, we see next the surprise of the audience. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They were astonished. The surprise of the audience. Let's notice, first of all, who is surprised. Right? See verse 13, when they, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were astonished. Who is the they? Who is astonished? Well, when we look at the beginning of the passage, we find that it's the captain of the temple in verse 1 and the Sadducees. And then on verse 5, there's an even more august assembly On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. This is the leading body of all Judaism. They're the religious and political powers of the day, the the high priests and the families connected with the high priests, the Sadducees who had connections to Rome, who had connections to political power. Again, they were the ones behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, the rulers, the the scribes, the, the professionals in the law that were often Pharisees, they knew the Scriptures. And so in this group of men, these rulers of all Judaism. They're gathered together. And when they ask that question, by what power or by what name did you do this? This question is filled with consequence. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the Jews were told that when a sign or miracle was done in their midst, they were to find out by what power or name that that sign was done. And if that sign was done outside of the name of the Lord, if that sign was done in a way to draw people away from the Lord, then the person, the prophet who did that sign was to be condemned to death. Right? That's the setting here. This is not just a let's go to Starbucks and talk about religion a little bit. This is the ruling party of Judaism questioning the apostles, questioning the authoritative revelatory representatives of Christ and asking them, are are you in obedience with our law or are we going to condemn you to death as well? What's on the line is the life of Peter and John as they stand before this group. As they stand before this group of people who, look at verse 11, Peter addresses them in this way. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, and then he says, you the builders. These were the people that the Jews considered to be the builders 
of their religious system. They had the authority. They had the power. They believed God. They believed the Scriptures. You could put it in these terms. They were the political activists and the conservatives, the people who believed God and the Scriptures and who were trying to establish their own national identity. They were the political power of Judaism. But what we find, as is so often the case, here are these people, these religious movers and shakers, but it's often the religious people that reject the preeminence of Christ who prove to be the most aggressive antagonist of the gospel. Let me say that again. Religious people who reject the preeminence of Christ often prove to be the most aggressive antagonists of the gospel. These are religious people who believe the Scriptures to one degree or another and who believe in God but have rejected the preeminence of Christ. You see, this is what the gospel does. When you begin to understand the implications of what Peter states in verse 12 and what is expanded throughout your New Testament, and look at the reaction of these men, what we find is that the gospel consistently confronts self-satisfied, self-righteous people by proclaiming the supernatural resurrection and return of Christ. And if you have any religion, if you have any religion minus repentance, the total will be rebellion. Any religion minus repentance will equal rebellion. Why is that? Because when we understand the gospel, the gospel that exerts the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, what we see is that we, we will personally stand before Christ. We will personally stand before the glorified Son of Man, and we will be undone before Him. And the only saving response to understanding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that we fall down on our faces in repentance before the Lord of glory. And any religion that minimizes the glory of Christ and the return of Christ and our absolute corruption before a holy God is nothing. Religion minus repentance is rebellion because a religion minus repentance is a religion that has not dealt with the holiness of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so these people, they have religion. 
but it's a self-satisfied, self-righteous religion that the proclamation of the supernatural resurrection and return of Christ confronts. What was it then that surprised them? Well, they, as they're listening to Peter and John, they see their boldness and they perceive that they were uneducated common men. And what they're speaking of there is, is simply that they had not been trained in the rabbinical schools. They didn't know the nuances of Jewish law. And this was astounding to them that these fishermen, these common laborers could stand before the august assembly of the rulers of Judaism and tell them that the, that the person that they rejected, the person that they crucified, that person was the cornerstone, that person was the one that would judge them, that person was the very name by which they must be saved. They were astounded. How can these fishermen who don't even know the nuances of the law, how can they proclaim this with boldness? They're shocked. Well, that brings us to the last statement of the passage that we're looking at this morning. How is it that a common fisherman could preach the simplicity of the gospel with such power that he shook and shocked the leading body of Judaism out of their minds. Well, we come finally to the source of power. We've seen the simplicity of the gospel message, the surprise of the audience, and now the source of power. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus. What is the source of power for effective gospel proclamation? Folks, there's no class that can give you that. There's no methodology. You have to know Jesus. You have to know Jesus. And in the context of they're recognizing this from a historical perspective. And so there's an element that begins with a historic relationship with Jesus. These men had indeed been with Jesus. Jesus called them away from their nets. They followed him. And for three years, they were under his instruction. You know, Peter was called away from fishing twice. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, and then after Christ rose from the dead. And that's a very encouraging thing for all of us because it summarizes Peter's life. He wasn't perfect. Uh, he had been with Jesus, but you remember when, the, when he confessed who Jesus was? The next thing Jesus said is, well, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter said, not so, Lord. And the Lord had to rebuke him. And then on the night of the crucifixion, Peter, who had boisterously stood up and said, I won't deny you. When it came to it, he denied the Lord, and he denied the Lord, and he denied the Lord. And then he wept. And later on, 
Peter will have to be rebuked even by the Apostle Paul because of his waffling on some issues. These men didn't have any special power in and of themselves. They were imperfect, but they stayed with Jesus. They endured with Christ. And, you know, if you think about this aspect of being with Jesus just in the historic sense, simply being with Christ wasn't enough because there was another man whose name was Judas who also had been with Jesus. And so there's something else, there's something else than just being in his physical presence that gave Peter the ability to speak with such power and authority the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's the historical relationship, but there ultimately was a spiritual transformation that happened in Peter. And we see this even as he rejected or denied Christ, Peter repented and was restored. And that spiritual transformation that takes place in true followers of Christ The thing that distinguishes true followers of Christ from faux followers of Christ is that their life is marked not by perfection, but by repentance. They acknowledge when they've sinned. They acknowledge when they've been wrong. They acknowledge when they've denied the Lord by their words or by their life, and they're grieved at their sin, and they go back to Christ, and they go back to Christ, and they go back to Christ. He had been transformed by the Lord. And as you mark Peter's life throughout the New Testament, First and Second Peter are such sweet epistles when you consider the up and down spiritual life of the man who wrote them. And they're sweet because they're filled with Christ. But in that moment... In that moment, as he stood before the ruling body of the Jews, there's another element here that the passage tells us. Look at verse 8. After the question was raised, by what power do you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And then he goes on and gives his answer. The source of the power was, yes, a historic relationship with Christ, spiritual transformation by Christ, and then also the present power of the Holy Spirit at work in Peter. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He proclaimed Christ. He proclaimed Christ. Folks, you could go to this passage alone and build a case against the ridiculousness of the charismatic movement and what they view as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't coming into a room and going crazy and losing control. Christ said in John 16 that he was going to send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would glorify him. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told the apostles 
that the Holy Spirit would come on them and they would be witnesses. They would be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we find consistently throughout the New Testament is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be living a life that is cultivating a Christ-like character as witness to Christ, and it overflows in witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ because of the great things that he has done for you. You look at Ephesians, being spirit-filled means that when we gather together, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Means that in our homes, we fill the proper roles in our marriage. Means that in our homes, we fill the proper roles as parents and children. Right? That, that's what being spirit-filled is. It's transformation by the Spirit of God to cause us to reflect Jesus Christ. And in a very heightened way, that's exactly what's happening here as Peter declares Jesus Christ. He's bearing witness to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and fulfilling the promise that Jesus had laid out before them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Being filled with the Spirit ultimately enables witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of power is Christ and the Spirit that Christ gives to us. Proclaiming Christ, proclaiming Christ is the natural result of knowing Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. So on the basis of that today, let me just ask us a few questions here. When we go to the Word of God, are we going to the Word of God to find Christ? Are we going to the Word of God to be filled with awe before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or do we just go to find more knowledge about God, about the Bible? Now, this is about a person. Jesus himself told us repeatedly the whole Bible was about him. And how about, how about our effectiveness in witnessing for Christ? You know, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Are we being effective witnesses for Jesus Christ? When we look at our lives, in light of this text, you know, the question, the question that we should be answering is this. Are we, be, are we spending time with Christ? Does our life show that we know Christ? As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, do we love Christ? Whom have he not seen do you love? Does he have your affections? Or is Christianity just a show for you? Is it just a mask that you put on on Sunday and maybe Tuesday? Is it just something that helps you get by when life might be tough? 
Now, followers of Christ, they love Christ. And it's their love for Christ that fuels their proclamation of Christ and their love for the people around them to whom they proclaim Christ. And perhaps even this morning, likely in a room like this, there are people who don't know Christ. Most of what I've said perhaps has been completely foreign to you today because you don't know the Lord. Maybe you're like the Sadducees and and you have that shell. You believe God and believe the Scriptures, but you haven't been confronted with the glory of Christ and fallen on your face in repentance and belief in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. You're going to die. And there is only one name by which you must be saved. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel proclamation, whether it's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Syria, Rome, Mexico, Florida, Cincinnati, around the world, Gospel proclamation asserts the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the Word of God, both the written Word and the incarnate Word. Thank you for your love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, your love toward us is beyond comprehension, but we praise you and we thank you for it. We thank you for the word, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your good work as we not only hear the word, but our doers of the Word and the power of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.